everyone. Welcome to this episode of the 10K Media Podcast. Today I have with me Shimon Toltz, the CEO and co-founder of DebtTree.io. How are you doing? Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you very much, Adam. I'm doing great. I just got engaged. Yes, I heard the news. Uh, that's very exciting. What's, uh, what's your partner's name? Her name is Raout, which is a very hard name for English speakers. Raout? So her Raout. But, but her Starbucks name is Anna, so it's easier, you know? <laughs> well, if she's listening to by chance, congratulations and uh, exciting stuff. So you're based in Tel Aviv, correct? Yes. You know, I've heard your office is pretty close to Permit.io, which is uh, actually a 10K media client, and it's your friend Or Weiss, CEO over there. And apparently he told me, like, there's kind of a whole row of, startups like he's he wants to call it like dev tool alley or something that that's over there is that is that correct and why, why is everyone ending up in that on that street yeah so the street name is Beit Hillel which is a very very famous uh, name in, in in Israel and um, yeah it's us we're the tree we're in the field of devops and infrastructure and dev tools we have permit.io we have rookout we have Ariga and I think it's a great area because it's uh, close to Sarona in Tel Aviv, close to the train station, close to central Tel Aviv. And it's just a wonderful neighborhood. And so it happens to be that our office is in Beit Hillel 7 and Permit's office is number six. <laughs> and we're great friends. So it's always nice to have good neighbors. Well, that sounds really fun. Actually, uh, I'm coming to Tel Aviv for the first time uh, in early April. and. Uh, at least one of the days I'll be working out of permits office. So uh, hopefully get to meet everybody and maybe we'll, we'll cross paths too. But um, anyway, Great. well, let's get into you. So maybe we should start. So when did the tree.io launch? So um, our current state, our product launched around uh, less than a year ago. We launched on Hacker News. We're a YC company. So we did like a, show HN to talk about uh, what we do. Um, I feel like it, it touched on some nerves. So it got really popular and we were in the front page for six hours. And um, ever since we, we are really active within the community. And what we do is we prevent misconfigurations from reaching production in Kubernetes workloads. And I think that, you know, it, it, it really talked to a lot of people and really touched them because I myself experienced this in my previous role as an engineering manager for the infrastructure group at a company called Iron Source. We had 400 developers, and one of them made a mistake. I always make mistakes; it happens all the time. And it was a misconfiguration that you know reached production and made major problems for our for our production workload. And the most frustrating thing was that we actually knew what is the problem. What we had no ability of how to prevent it in the future. And we had to invent the tools to actually go and make sure that we don't make the same mistake again. Wow. So we built an open source and we launched on, on Hacker News. So is, well, let, let me back, backtrack one step. So I know you launched on Hacker News. I think there was also a TechCrunch clip, right? Um, or at least when you raised the funding. I don't know if that's a separate moment from the launch or if that was the same moment. It was a separate. Oh, separate. Okay, interesting. So when you first came 
sort of to market? Was it as an open source project? Was there any SaaS or uh, paid offering or was it just the open source when, when you uh, went to Y Combinator and then you were on Hacker News? Yeah, so, so up until now, we're only now starting our monetization path, but it always started as an open source plus SaaS. So it's more similar to, I'd say, like a, a sneak or, or other solutions that you have an open source component, and this is the one that performs the scans and evaluations and so on, but it communicates with the SaaS. Now, there is a way to run in a detached mode, but then you don't get all of the auditing and user management and centralized policy controls and so on. Got it. Um, and so, as we launched, uh, you know, uh, Hacker News really helped us spread the word and it also helped us reach 5,000 GitHub stars, which made us a GitHub trending repo for three days in a row. So it really helped us with, with the, the expansion and letting people know about what we do. Yeah, and for us, it was the most important thing to cater to the champion and not for like, you know, general fundraising and stuff like that. Yes. No, we'll talk about, you know, I think this is a common theme I've been hearing in, in the developer tool space really for a long time, right? Like the companies that get it, get it about how you need to market and appeal to these kind of folks. And the, I think the PLG conversation is very interesting, but really is kind of just a continuation of the sort of bottom-up conversations that have been happening in the industry for a long time now. Um, when you got on Hacker News, I just want to, you know, I try to see if we can extract insights and value to listeners because, it, you know, people have all sorts of bizarre ways to try to get on the front page of Hacker News where you create like a uh, upvoting ring, but you can't have the same IP and you've got to be logged in like incognito, mo you know, who knows what, what these... And, and people ask me all the time, I mean, you know, getting onto and remaining in Hacker News isn't quite media relations. It's not, you know, there's no journalists involved, but it can be part of a helpful launch. And I, and I do think it's, it's um, of high value when, when you can get on that front page. And even you said be there for six hours. That's, that's really amazing because the target audience is there. Um, it, was there any any sort of like uh, machinery to, to to manufacture that, or was it kind of just, you know, it's organic interest, and uh, if if it's resonating, it's resonating, and it's kind of was a beast of its own. Yeah, so uh, the answer is both yes and no. So I'll say why. So there is machinery, and there is a lot of preparation you need to do in the way to launch, but there is no actual hacking of like uh, voting rings and stuff like that because it doesn't work. Hacker News is so big now that it can't work. What you actually do in terms of machinery and, and so first of all, um, you know, the core pillars of developer messaging in, in my mind is like authenticity, really tell your story as it is. Usefulness is like, we prevent misconfigurations, like don't forget to put a memory limit, CPU limit, liveness probe and so on. Clarity, here is a GitHub repo, you just run the tree test on a configuration file. And honesty, it's like, hey, this is what we did. We've experienced this by ourselves. And this is what I call the preparation. And there is a saying, you know, luck is uh, when opportunity means, uh, meets uh, preparation. So um, this is the right thing. I think to, to write the, the launch a chain or show a chain in a way that is very authentic, useful, uh, clear, and honest and to build all the infrastructure around it. And then if it really touches people, it will work. 
Yeah, I agree, actually. And it's another saying that comes to mind where it's like, uh, if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend the first four sharpening the axe. And I think like the idea is like, it, you got to do the right thing up front. And I think this isn't just about PR and about awareness. It's about really all of this sort of stuff, right? Like really to do it well, you're not going to pull the wool over people's eyes in this space, especially, right? So um, you, you kind of have to come from a place of authenticity and you have to do good work and create something valuable and expect the benefits to come back. And you can't guarantee it, right? I mean, I there's been launches uh, I've been a part of that the story and the product was great, but there's a lot of variables that go into how that shakes out. Um, and I think if you just keep your head down and you keep doing good work and you stay true to those kind of core principles, right, then, then, it, then it, will, it will come back to you. Um, and I think people also know when you're doing something because you genuinely want to add value versus you're just trying to squeeze. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think yeah. it, it was great that you got on Hacker News and that you've got 5,000 stars or whatever, but none of that was guaranteed, right? But I assume that the path and the mission would have been the same sort of regardless. Yeah, I, I, I think that, first of all, it's, you know, it sounds like, oh, you go on Hacker News, you, you launch, you get 5,000 stars, that's it, boom. But it's it's not the real story, right? The real story is you work hard, you do a preparation, and, and together with other activities, we also, the actual launch that we did was with the, a lot of influencers that covered our, our solution as well. But maybe I want to say the don'ts. The don'ts of a launch is maybe as important, if not more important than the do's. So we also had this happen to us where we have like friends and friendly people and they want to help you. So they go and they start ask questions and they start doing things that are just obvious that it's like someone trying to help you. And thankfully for us, like the Hacker News team understood that it's just people that are over eager to help us. So they deleted the comments. But just to understand, getting flagged and deleted is, is the most common thing that will happen to you. So you should really tell your friends to chill and not do any fake stuff because it's not going to work. And even if they're just enthusiastic and want to help. Yeah, I've even seen founders become almost too thirsty or too combative on their own hacker new threads, right? And like, not that you can't respond to comments, but just, you know, it, it is a delicate balance. And I I think you're, you're right. And it, and it just goes back to like, you know, being a genuine, authentic, you know, wanting to help, but not being in people's faces too much, right? And, and if you, yeah, overstep those boundaries, uh, uh, you will get flagged. And I, I think that's true really of um, even a lot of good, media relations and thought leadership. Like if you approach the media sort of like as a sales operation almost, right? Like it's yeah. not gonna work. You really need to be able to talk about the space objectively and to add value to conversations, even if you're not talking about your own product. Another thing that I can say is that the launch is, is the end. So for us, it was important that when we launch, people go and Google us or go and search for the tree in YouTube. And then we had the channel Tech World with Nana. She made a review about our 
product and we had the open source and we had the website and we had the doc. So it's just the, the beginning. And then people were able to read all the other resources, by the way, which then prompted a lot of popularity on GitHub, which is another thing. Our launch HN directed people to GitHub, not to our marketing website. And our marketing website up until today has no book a demo button. It only has a get started and get started takes you to the docs. And in order to, to start, you need to actually install the CLI on your computer. So like my mother can't do it. So people that are really the champions, they value it. And you go like, okay, this place is for me. Like I come in, I see a CLI, I, I understand I'm in the right place. Yeah, I think, um, well, how important do you think open source is to PLG? I mean, I imagine you can have PLG without open source and you can, yes. you know, but I've always felt that having it's it's even true like there are some publications where if you contribute thought leadership you literally cannot mention your own product unless it's a sponsored post right like you literally have to be able to talk about the problem space in a way that doesn't feel like you're, you're trying to push your own product which can be hard um but if you have an open source solution right uh you're giving it away for free and it's usually always kosher to mention that right because it's free value you're not selling anything um but i imagine in a way it, it's a groundswell and it creates sort of a funnel for the paid solution and i i don't know if you you would think about it that way that directly but i'd say that you know even if five percent of those users convert to paying or even if you know people who never would have heard about your paid solution but They've heard of the open source and maybe come across your paid later. Um, it's got to be a good funnel for bottoms up. W would you agree? I totally agree. I think that if you provide a solution that has a component that runs in your client side, um, whether it's an SDK of yours or a, some sort of CLI or whatever, not going open source is a mistake um, because at the end of the day, as an engineer, if you want to evaluate something, you want to understand what's going on there. And now, if you're running it in, on, on my side, why are you going to give me a compiled binary that I need to disassemble? It's like, it doesn't make any sense. And on the other hand, it opens up a community for people to talk. So sometimes we like have bugs on the marketing website and people go and open an issue in GitHub. And like, yeah, you have a typo here. You know, so it really opens up. So I think it's a huge benefit if you can provide an open source component. Now, I don't know, maybe your PLG startup is just a website and there is no way. But if you look today, I don't know, Datadog, all of the connectors are, are open source. New Relic, uh, Permit, uh, AWS, all the cloud vendors, like any component that runs on the customer side is always open source. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think there's an interesting conversation here between open source and PLG. And I think the, the, the PLG motion, it's funny because to me, it's always felt like a choice. I've seen it um, at, at organizations. Now I should say, and I, I don't wanna name names specifically, but I've, I've worked at dev startups that have gotten quite big. And it was always kind of known that like, sales is kind of how the sausage is made. Like you never wanna be at least public facing you know, that obvious that you're a top-down enterprise operation because it does turn off the end users in like the DevOps space anyway. Um, but so what, what a company I'm thinking of would do is, you know, they had the trial, they had some sort of self-serve, it was there, 
but actually the bulk of their business was coming from top-down enterprise deals, but they just kind of, that was kind of abstracted. No one really would have to know that. Um, and, and I've seen also um, uh, at younger startups where it's tempting to really focus on top-down. One of them that I'm thinking about closed one bank, a deal that you know made them hit their target revenue for the whole quarter. Um, and so they just decided for the next year, we're only going to focus on like the five major banks. And like, I just thought, wow, what a short-sighted mistake that is for a developer tool, right? But, you know, you can see how the Pareto distribution would come into effect here where like, you know, your top small amount of customers are driving the majority of your revenue and you're, you're very tempted to maybe just secure more of those. But, you know, in exchange for really losing um the breadth and the width of your opportunity and then if one of the two of those clients churn you're kind of uh, uh screwed but how do you feel about that balance between bottoms up and, and top down so we don't have enough time and we'll have to have another episode in order to talk about it but we actually started as a top-down organization and we got about three hundred thousand dollars of sales from a dozen of customers and Again, the reason why we started as a top-down is a, is a whole discussion, and we were very much influenced by the security, uh, that top-down model that was very, very popular in Israel and still is up to today. But as we got deeper and deeper and we looked and we saw that like 100% of the deals that we closed were DevOps engineers, DevOps leaders, and none of them wanted to see a demo, and we did not want to give a demo. And when we learned about this thing called product-led growth, we're like, amazing, this is the way I would want to buy this solution. Yep. Now, saying that, it doesn't mean that you don't, like that sales is a curse word, you know? Um, growth plus sales is okay. I think that um, um, at one of my communities, we had uh, Martin from Andreessen Horowitz he, he characterizes this as the death of the outbound salesperson. Because if you look at it like inbound salespeople, uh, customer success, solution architects that help you on board the, to the product is great and it's amazing. I think the, the major change is like, you don't call up people and be like, hey, you wanna try my DevOps solution. They come to you, they try it. Yeah. And you know, someone's asked me once, Shimon, how do you sell dev tools to developers and my answer was they buy dev tools you don't sell it to them yeah i love that and i think uh maybe just a note about so the the, the hard stop time wise was on my end but actually i i just pushed it back so we, we have some more room to, to talk about this stuff because i think it's it's interesting to folks and that's an interesting pivot did you have to change the product dramatically to to in, enable the the plg or um, you know, what, what did that look like going from, you know, changing the mindset? So initially when we started, we, we were, you know, it's the same problem space. It, 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 more and more responsibilities are delegated from DevOps to developers. There are so much more developers than DevOps engineers. And now that everything is in the cloud, infrastructure is code is eating the world. And all of a sudden developers are making production affecting changes. So in a classical top-down approach, you start with the problem space and then you talk to the customer and you go like, okay, so under this problem space, what are the most addressing use cases for you? So some of them would go like, yeah, we want to 
prevent secrets from reaching production. We want to make sure that we're SOC 2 compliant. So we want our Jira ticket to be in the pull request title. Some of them apply the tests to infrastructure as code and, and some of them to the Git workflow and more and more. And then when we said, okay, we want to change to a bottoms up approach to a PLG pipeline, we have to pick one use case and we can't be so broad. And then we said, okay, we're big believers in, in this shift. We really see that Kubernetes is the operating system of the cloud native. And we said, we're going to be really, really sharp. We're gonna say prevent misconfigurations in Kubernetes. So you understand that it is for you. If you're using Kubernetes, it will prevent misconfigurations. And this is how uh, we set by it. Another thing is actually that we had to change is that when we started, uh, we had an integration that was the GitHub app. And when we switched to PLG, this is when we developed the open source. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I So let's talk about the solution real quick. Um, so misconfigurations, I think, have become, you know, I'm, I'm new to these more like DevOpsy, DevSecOpsy, like I, I've, I know about misconfigurations in a security context, but it seems like that's not exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about misconfigs more in like an operations sort of context or, or yeah, maybe, maybe explain what, what, what is the problem space that Datry.io is, is looking at? Yeah. So um, when you look at the Kubernetes, um, let's take a step back. Kubernetes it chose as a methodology, as a philosophy, that they prefer flexibility over simplicity. So the simple uh, you know, example can be iPhone versus Android, right? In iPhone, there is one right way to do everything and it's simple and easy. In Android, you have a lot of options. You can change it. You can put a different launcher and do whatever you want. So with that, Kubernetes is very flexible and you can change every dial and, and every knob and play with it. So it was very good for operations people because they can lift and shift their workloads and configure them exactly the way they want. The problem starts with the developers are starting to, you know, to write applications on it. And then they don't know that they need, for example, to put a memory limit. Now, if you don't put a memory limit, I'll give you a classical example. So let's say you use a queuing service like RabbitMQ. The default behavior of the queuing service is to consume the entire memory of the machine for queuing. So as a regular developer, I don't know, I run a container, I, I know it's containerized. So I'm like, okay. And then you, you put it on your Kubernetes cluster and it eats up the entire host memory. That's just one example. Another example might be, you need to configure a liveness probe, a readiness probe, really all of the things that um, used to be very much abstracted and done by operation teams, but today they are being done by developers. So yes. there are some security aspects to it as well, but the main thing is really operational excellence, uh, just staying up, just following development standards and best practices. And this is what happens. The DevOps engineers configure the policy as they want. This is another difference between a security solution. Because when you, give, when you have a security solution, you scan something and it says if it's okay or not, and that's it. Maybe you can change the severity. With the tree, you could say, I don't believe in a liveness probe. I want to disable this rule. And I want to write custom rules. I want 
all of the containers to be called 10K Media. And you can do that with our platform. Yeah, that's cool. So those are the main differences. How do you feel about, um, you know, okay, so you zone in. So Kubernetes is obviously, you know, it's one of the hottest, you know, technologies out there. And you you, you find a pain point and you say, okay, we're going to hyper-focus on this pain point. And you have a lot of startups in the dev tool, tool space doing this, right? It's like focusing in on a problem and really starting there and, and doing that. And then you have the bigger players. I mean, all the way back to AWS and the, the cloud providers, but maybe one degree removed from that, like a Datadog, you know, sort of just becoming this like operations single place to try and do everything from infrastructure monitoring. They're getting into security a little bit, you know, incident response, uh, you know, who knows how many things they're going to glue together in this like kind of huge Datadog dashboard world. Um, and as a, I don't know, as a business leader, I can see the appeal of this, right? To have a sort of, listen, let's just buy this enterprise tool one time and we can check boxes and, and hopefully get enough value. Uh, maybe it's not as good at everything, but then we don't have a hundred tools. We've got one or two or, or whatever. Um, and, and I asked this question to, to Orr as well um, from permit.io. And I'm curious your response of just like, even as a developer yourself, right? And as a business owner yourself, right? How do you balance picking from all of these tools that you could do for every little thing versus trying to get a platform that sort of is more broad? And, and how do you see your own growth going, right? Are you do, you, do you imagine in the future, you'll stay with misconfigs, but maybe broader than just Kubernetes? Or do you think you'll stay with Kubernetes, but maybe do more than just misconfigs? Um, that's a lot of questions there. So sorry about that. <laughs> no, no worries. It's a very interesting discussion. You know, I'm an AWS community hero and I've been since I think 2015 or something. I don't remember. So I'm very, very close to the ins and outs of AWS. And I remember when I saw Snowflake competing for as a data warehouse against Amazon. And I looked at it, I'm like, those guys are absolutely crazy. Amazon can buy the servers physically cheaper than them. How do they possibly think that they can compete with this Goliath? Guess what? Snowflake is killing it. There is an amazing company. They're much more popular than Redshift, even though I use Redshift, but they're amazing. And, and it's a great example that at the end of the day, um, it's a, it's a decision that you need to make if you want the best of breed solution for, for what you're, you're doing or you want a one-stop one shop. And then, first of all, you can, you can choose. So as a startup, I can say, we will always be better because we are more focused and, and we can go deeper in a specific uh, solution than uh, a general company. And as, as a startup, you need to constantly, you know, imagine you have a sword flying over your head and it's constantly going down and down and down. And you need to continue pushing it up and up and up and constantly reinventing yourself and constantly providing more value. Or if you, you know, fall asleep and, and then all of the other general players catch up to you, then you don't have your, uh, your advantage. Now, so this is in the general sense of like, you know, a best of breed versus specific solution. And even at the vendors, if you look today, let's say AWS, you can bring your own security rules. You can use other players that are very, very much laser focused on something. 
Now, as regards to the tree, misconfigurations is just the beginning and it's a specific subset, yes, but we are enablers of Kubernetes for devs and DevOps together. And we're the first solution that does it in a shift left plus production way. So you can make sure that what you're doing in, in a shift left dev and what is running in production is the same thing. And for us, we're going to move deeper and deeper into Kubernetes and provide more and more value on top of it. Um, and I think that this is a logical step, like we can look at Snyk, for example, they started with uh, you know, vulnerabilities for packages and then they went for containers and now they have code scanners and now they also do infrastructure as code. So you gotta, you gotta continue growing. Yes. Um, well, it'll be fun to watch what you guys stay up to. How big is the team now? So it's, it's interesting. We used to be five people not so long ago, less than a year ago, and now we're 19. And wow. we continue to grow, yeah. From that's five a, to 19, yeah. That's amazing. So what's on, is there any um, anything you want to talk about, give people a little taste about what's coming either from a product roadmap perspective or even from a business perspective? Um, you know, obviously I know how these things go and some things need to stay sort of under under wraps, but um, yeah, what, what, what can people expect maybe a little bit in the immediate future from you? Yeah, so we're just really, really soon, we're, we're, um, we're going to release um, something that's called, we call it rule packs. So what is it? So you, you're working with Kubernetes, but you work in an ecosystem. So let's say one of the most popular things in this ecosystem is Argo CD. And a lot of our users have said, okay, listen, you have a great solution, it verifies my YAML, it does schema validation, it runs my rules, but now my developers are using Argo CD. So what, do I need to reinvent the wheel and now you know, write custom policies for Argo CD by myself? Go like, no, that's a great idea. And what we're doing now is go and release more and more rule packs for the different uh, uh, product in this ecosystem. And then we automatically identify them and run the checks for you when we identify that you use it. That sounds so, amazing. Yeah, so this is one vertical is like providing more and more value in your ecosystem. And the second thing that I'm a big believer is integrating natively within everything that you do. Mm. So we have a VS Code extension, pre-commit hook, CLI on your computer. We have a GitHub action for your CI and GitLab and like every, I want to be natively integrated into every tool because you know, developers are lazy. DevOps are lazy. <laughs> they have so many things to do. They're really busy. So I want to be a click of a button for everyone to enable the tree alongside the entire funnel. Yeah, that's, you know, I'm almost, I'm not a obviously a developer myself and I, uh, I'm surprised how many times I've heard that phrase. Engineers are are lazy. I remember uh, Colton Andrus, CEO of Gremlin, would always say, "If if you want engineers to do something, uh, especially if it's a new thing, you better make it easy to do. You know, um, it's got to be simple and and straightforward and and kind of be where they already are, right? I think that's why a lot of these like IDE plugins, right, and and all these integrations make make things." Um, yeah, makes just makes your product a lot stickier also, right? Because then it's integrated in all of these workflows um, that that the developer is already doing. Absolutely. Um, you know, when we when we launched, we just 
we launched our product in a very, very lean way, and I'm very proud of it. We just had three commands, the tree version, the tree help, and the tree test. And mm. all you can do is run a test against the Kubernetes manifest. And we had one web page, and you had like 10 rules, and you can go like on, off, on, off, that's it. And then as we continued uh, hearing feedback from our users, they wanted like to, to manage the policy as code in a GitOps way and so on. And one of the most popular things was like, we want a Helm plugin. And, and when you use Helm, you can just do a Helm template and then it generates a Kubernetes manifest. And at the beginning we were like, what's the problem? Just Helm template, pipe it into the tree, just one command. We're like, no, no, I don't want to do a command. I want to have a plugin. And, and this really, you know, was for us like a ka-ching. Okay, yeah. we understand that if we get the native integration, they feel at home. They feel that we did the extra mile. No, and- I, that's a really great insight, right? Even just taking away that one command, people yeah. feel, feel that, that effort and that value. Um, There's nothing in it. It's open source. It's like 40 lines of code just right. you know, to wrap it nicely. There is nothing in it. But half of our usage is by this plugin. Can you... Maybe while we wrap up, just you said something really interesting. You only had 10 rules, three checks, right? Whatever, when you when you first started. Does that mean when you were in beta and you were getting feedback from customers behind the scenes? Or do you mean when you actually had a public-facing thing, it was that simple? There was, it was the same thing. There was no private beta. Okay. So they, you just came out... Just- going there and releasing with three commands and like 10 rules. And for us, we said, what is the minimal viable um, value that we can give? Like what is the smallest thing, but that I know it will really give value to people. It won't be the best thing. It won't integrate natively with everything. You will have to click buttons in the UI. It's, it's not as code, but, but it really gives you value because many people said like, Listen, I want all my developers to set a liveness probe. We had our production go down because of it. How can I do it in a simple way? Like here you can do it. And then we continue to iterate. That, I think that that is a testament to how if you're solving a real problem, right? Uh, it doesn't need to have all the bells and whistles. Like if it's really there and there's you're onto something, get it out and get the feedback. Um, so I, I think I think that's really interesting insight for folks who may, you know, I've seen this too, where people postpone a launch, you know, a year because they're like, oh, oh no, God. but we need this. And we talked to this customer and they would want like this feature and they would want this. Um, and and it I, want to add, hard- I want to add something, Adam. It's very important to me. I want to, to, to tell the listeners what is the methodology that we're working on. So we use the one, two, three methodology. There is a great video in Heavy Beat that you can watch. Um, and the methodology says you cater to the end user, then you cater to the team, then you cater to the organization. And if you think about it, as we launched, we did not have a fancy user management and token management system and like the, the basic things that you would expect from every SaaS. But we said, what do we prefer? We prefer to postpone a launch, have a great user management and no one use this thing or have a lot of people using this thing and telling us, are you stupid? Why can't I invite my teammates to use it? It's really great. I want my teammates to use it. And this is the point where we're at. And people were like coming to us like, what is this? Why can't I invite my other DevOps people? They were like, you're right. We're building it. We'll build it now. 
It's no, like, if this that, is the place I want to be at. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, because if you start with the real value, that there's something there that they want to share, then they'll share it and they'll tell their friends, right? And then you'll start hearing uh, what you're missing. But that's probably good to hear. I mean, in a lot of contexts, I'm sure a lot of the feedback you're hearing is like, I know, we're, we'll get to it. But maybe there's even like new new feedbacks that you wouldn't have thought of that, you know, of when people are using it in the wild. And like, if you build too much without that feedback, you could actually be missing out on some really valuable insights early on in sort of the product development, right? Another funny story is that we launched our open source and it's, uh, it's written in Go. So we compiled it for Linux and Mac because, you know, who uses Windows? And then one of the first issues that opened is like, why can't they use this on Windows? And you're like, eh, okay, let's talk. And then we talk and it's like a team of 15 DevOps engineers who do PowerShell and Windows. This is their stack. And we go like, okay, so listen, we can compile it, but we have no Windows machines. And we're like, yeah, yeah, send it to us. We'll help you test it. We'll test it on our end. And then I remember seeing for the first time the tree.exe. I thought I'm going to die. It was like, oh my God, what is this? And, and we send it to them. And guess what? Today we actually support Windows and we have people who use it on Windows. And just because, you know, they ask for it and help us. That's amazing. Well, hopefully uh, there's a lot of interesting insights for folks listening in. Uh, um, you know, I have a lot of friends in the DevOps space who have little side projects and may want to make a jump and, 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 and start their own thing. And, and hopefully there's some interesting tidbits here, but even for just like, I've been having these conversations recently about PLG, about bottoms up, about open source. And I really think if you're in this space and you're not in that mindset, you know, you may be able to close big enterprise deals, but I, in the long run, you know, it's just not where the market is, is headed in this, in this space, I think. And uh, it's easy to get blinded by a couple of big deals and wanting more of those. And like you said, Shimon, uh, I think, you know, uh, sales isn't a bad word, um, but, you know, this, this sort of like effort to qualify the leads to try to get the interest organically and have a more natural sales cycle, right? And then also a focus on customer success, right? Like once they are customers, are you making sure that you're continuing to add value and you're taking care of them? I think this is where things are going. So anyway, thank you for your time. Uh, you know, if you're interested in if you're building a new app, cloud native application and you're thinking about Kubernetes, um, or if you're already on Kubernetes, obviously, and, and this, this tool might be able to help you. So that's D-A-T-R-E-E, Datry.io. And uh, check out their project, go to their website, check them out on GitHub. It's a very popular project and uh, I'm sure it'll add value to you. So uh, Shimon, thank you for your time. And uh, when I'm in Tel Aviv, hopefully we'll uh, cross paths. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Thank you, Adam. All right. Have a good one.